This is the podcast for June 8th, 2012. It's not safe for work. Recorded live from just outside the Orly Tate School of Applied Mathematics, it's the professional left with Drift Glass and Blue Gal. And we had a real debate going on for the opening of our show whether we were going to open with Orly Tate's or Ray Bradbury. Yes. And, which uh, which one of these has contributed more? Only one of them knows how to count. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Poor Orly. She's still counting votes. And she has yeah. to come in second and she's fourth. And <laughs> That doesn't work for her. It doesn't work for her, so she's going to make it fit. <laughs> so there must be a conspiracy. There must be a conspiracy against her. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's weird how those conspiracies just pop up in very selective non-Orly Tate's no, it's, always, it's always Orly Tate's denying ways. Yes, it's always denying yeah. her her will. Yes. <laughs> well, you can you can spot these people. This is why people like to have followings. Yeah. Well, that's true. Spot. Yeah. Yeah. You just you can spot them the minute something goes wrong. They reason backwards into what secret conspiracy must have been put together to deny me what's rightfully yeah. mine. Or just. Who do I blame for this? Yeah, yeah. sometimes it's no. just, okay, so whose fault was this? And that's mm-hmm. fine when you're four to six years old. <laughs> we we live with that. <laughs> Every day. <clears throat> Every day. My the, sibling did it. Where is he? Outside. The eight-year-old sometimes rolls out of bed saying, but. My what? brother did. He's still asleep. Area code. <laughs> oh, this is frustrating. Yeah. And I get that. That's it's a It's an infantile desire that. Most people eventually you know, grow up. We all, we, all we all get that way, though. And I, and I think a lot of us on the left this evening are feeling a little bit like, who do we blame for this? Uh, Voter vote. You know, it's, it's hard. This is a tough, tough call. I want to read a couple of letters. We got a Facebook comment from Michael at our Facebook page. And I had tweeted, uh, before the results came out, um, I had tweeted, Frankie says, relax. <laughs> <laughs> and... That the the arc of history bends towards justice and and we'll get through this. And I'd done that mostly for myself. You know, I spent the day yesterday consciously away from the computer and the TV all day. That was election day, and I just couldn't take it. I couldn't take, emotionally take, knowing that it was even going to be close. That upset me so much, the idea that we even had to worry about whether or not justice was going to take place mm-hmm. in Wisconsin upset me so much that this was mm-hmm. even close, that there was 50% of Wisconsinites who were going to vote the wrong way, or 50 plus one. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> there I was out in the garden digging up weeds, and <laughs> you came out and just said, are you okay? And I burst out crying, Wisconsin, I'm so upset, I can't take this. And, you know, I just, I really had to tell myself, relax, just and and we all need to do that. We need to take time away if it's getting to be too much for us. I want all of our listeners to know, because I know our listeners are passionate about politics. It is okay. Blue Gal says it is okay to take a break from politics, no matter yeah, what's going on, no matter how important it is. We, we talked a little bit about this during pregame, which was it's a lot like Slaughterhouse-Five. Everyone take mm-hmm. a drink. Blue Gal has come unstuck in time. Mm-hmm. And no matter what we do, it's always 2004. Yeah, yeah. And however far we get away from it, it's always 2004 again. It's always this, oh my God, I cannot believe that my country's about to cut 
the carotid as well as the jugular. I can't believe that we're about to watch a whole bunch of people who are citizens just like me, grew up in the same country just like me, who are presumably functioning upright ambulatory mammals with big brains just like me, who are about to make this catastrophically bad decision. And they did. And there was a long period there. This is when I discovered um, Stephen Gilliard. I, I discovered blogs. So I was desperate for a community of people who I could talk to mm-hmm. and process this in a group because by myself, I just thought I was going crazy. Um, and speaking of which, Stephen Gilliard passed five years ago this week. So, And you remembered him there. in a really lovely post yeah. uh, this uh, week. People should go on and read that. Yeah. A nice little, a nice little remembrance, but that's, that was five years ago, and yet it's this weird kind of PTSD for politics. Yeah. No matter how far away we get from it, it's always 2004 in our heads, and we'll, we snap right back to it. And that's what happened. That's exactly how I felt with Wisconsin. It was watching this tragedy unfold, and and watching people just drive off a cliff, and, and there's nothing you can say to stop them. They're just going to do it, and they're going to take you with them. And it's a very helpless feeling to, yeah. to watch that happen. Well, let me distance. let me read Michael at our Facebook yeah. page, his, his paragraph, and then we have a letter from California that I want to read. Michael at our Facebook page wrote that which a lot of us are feeling this week. I had said, Frankie says relax, and he said, please keep saying that over and over. Please make the podcast this week mostly about the Walker recall. I am about as angry and disgusted as I have ever been. I feel sick over this. Yet another victory for business interests and the Republicans in their war on the working class in America. Our government is so very close to being a completely owned and operated subsidiary of the richest individuals and the largest corporations. When when will our fellow citizens stop voting against their own best interests? They won't realize the water is boiling until it is far too late. We could all use some sane, rational words and historical perspective from you and Driftglass to get our heads back in the game. I could eat glass and punch a shark right about now. Yeah, Yeah, thank you, Michael. And then we got a wonderful letter in our P.O. box this week, which was written before the election. And I just found it so prescient. This is from Karen in California. Karen is a cancer survivor, and she's amazing. She's just an amazing, strong woman. I've gotten to know her through her correspondence. Uh, She is a dedicated supporter of our podcast work. Thank you, Karen. But for her to do that and be going through all that she's gone through and be as strong as she is and just, boy, she punched cancer right in the nuts. I'll tell you, she just did. And we're proud of her for that and – and proud that she is a part of our podcast family as well. And she writes, Dear Blue Gal and Drift Glass, just love your show and always listen to it. Glad that you have managed to hang on even without a big infusion of money. Now don't jump ship for Andrew Breitbart's big money sponsorship. <laughs> just had to write you a note after listening to the latest podcast. I heard Drift Glass ranting about how rich Democrats don't want to fund progressive groups and discussing how heroic the conservatives are for funding programs, grassroots groups, foundations, people like Tucker Carlson, who are know-nothing people who just shout the lingo, etc. I'd say dedicated as opposed to heroic, but I get you. Yeah, yeah. That's about right. The point is, what incentive do Democrats actually have for forking out the dough? If they do donate, 
It is truly a donation, and they can't expect to receive any remuneration except a pat on the back for it. The Republicans, on the other hand, invest, and they expect to and generally do receive a huge payback for their investment. The Koch brothers invested hundreds of millions of dollars in the past few years, but their wealth increased $15 billion in the past three years. That's right. I would say that's a pretty good return on your money. This provides a never-ending cycle of money and more policies change so they make more money in the future to complete the cycle. George Soros spends lots of money promoting democracy around the world, but what profit is he going to make in supporting liberal groups? The GOP has hired professors at colleges, scientists at federal agencies, researchers in drugs, economists in think tanks. The list goes on endlessly. The bottom line is that they are going to reap a financial bonanza from the plants down the road of the Koch brothers and others. They will keep getting richer and richer, spreading their tentacles even further. Unfortunately, the liberals are always fighting from defensive positions just to keep what has been built up over past years from washing away. They almost never receive money or government largesse from their donations. And John Purr wrote an article that he cross-posted at Crooks and Liars about just what kind of tax cut Mitt Romney is going to get if he's elected president, what his plan does to line his own pocket and the pockets of everybody else that is working for him. So uh, I just found that so prescient. On the other hand, um, there was a comment over at T-Bog that I wanted to share. Uh I don't hear, this is the comment, I don't get the surprise, disappointment, hindsight-driven regret that I've seen from Team Blue around the inner tubes today. We forced them to spend 30 million bucks on something they already owned. Getting the Senate keeps Walker from trying to pull any special session legislative bullshit over the summer. It's not going to hurt Obama at all, and with a little luck, it might tempt the Republicans into throwing a lot of money into a state they can't win in November anyway. You don't fight. This is the part that I loved. You don't fight because you think you can win. You fight because it's the right thing to do. And in this case, doing nothing would have been worse. In, in other words, the result would have been worse. I can see that point, but I also think we need to remind ourselves that $30 million bucks is chicken feed yeah. for the Koch brothers. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, before, before I... <laughs> <laughs> I am. I do want to hear what you have to say about this strip class, but mm-hmm. no, I'm I'm enjoying this side of it. The awesome intellect, Chuck Todd. Yeah, uh, <laughs> said that he this was not just a vote against the unions; it was a vote against the recall process, and that mm-hmm. somehow this uh, anti-recall idea was it was just a bridge too far because we hadn't proven yet that uh, Walker had broken any laws. That's that's premature. We, we may yet do that. But I had the question in response to that. Did Chuck Todd have anything to say when Frank Luntz convened and how to obstruct <laughs> the president meeting? You know, uh, right no. on Inauguration Day. Yeah. Or do you remember when health care reform passed the Congress mm-hmm. and Michelle Bachman ran out onto the balcony of the house to talk about screaming about repeal mm-hmm. the minute yeah. it passed. And so that. it's it's another, it's okay if you're a Republican. If we let a vote run its course and we let a vote stand, if it's the result that the Republicans want, mm-hmm. if it's not, then all bets are off. And I don't think Chuck Todd ever said anything along those lines. I 
would be surprised didn't, if didn't we did. just pass this in the Congress? Can't we just sort of see whether it's going to work or not before we try to repeal it? Well, never said is, that. This is the starting point for every conversation that we have. Not you and I, but every political conversation we have is, well, it's just a given that Republicans are sociopaths who will absolutely burn this country to the ground to, to make a point, to piss a liberal off, to make, an, make a buck. They don't care. That's just a given. It is implicit in every discussion. Implicit in every starting point of every conversation is Democrats are weak and they're back on their heels and isn't it cute how they're fighting for your rights and how they're going to lose eventually because they're being outspent 7 to 1, 10 to 1, 21, 30 to 1 everywhere. Isn't that cute? Yeah. And implicit in every conversation is the Chuck Todd, David Gregory, David Brooks. Well, you know, both sides are kind of unreasonable. And David Brooks wrote a column this week about how he wasn't, he wasn't crazy about, he wasn't a big fan of Scott Walker's methods, but at least he took a stand against deficits, blue gal, against, and if he'd lost, it would have sent a signal that would have destroyed America as we know it. Because, because, and it wasn't about unions. And he just, and David Brooks gets to say these things in the New York Times because David Brooks is a card carrying paid member of the insider media. And his pal, David Gregory, will have him on Meet the Press, and he'll repeat that lie over and over again. And we will never get any traction as long as that's the starting point for every conversation. Because every conversation that goes on in the media is four minutes long, and you yeah. can't mount an if argument. That, if that. You know? It's, it's yeah. not – it's become, you know, in, in, in deference to Ray Bradbury, um, it's become a genre. Yeah. And in, 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 it's like the Western. You know who the bad guys are because they wear the black hats. You know mm-hmm. who the good guys are. You don't have to explain what a black hat means in a Western or what a six shooter is or what a, what a horse is, what goat ropers are. And you don't have to explain any of that stuff. There's so much in our media. It's all trope. Yeah. It's, it, it's all, all trope. trope. Yep. And, and there's so much in our media conversation that's already deeply embedded in the discussion that never gets discussed. Mm-hmm. We never talk about the fact that you know, we never, nobody ever turns, no host ever turns to Alex Castellano and says, why the fuck, you mouthy little pimp, why the fuck are you even on television? Why the hell? Who the hell do, are you, whose cock are you sucking? Do you get to be on national television every fucking week? And, and there is no answer to that question other than, oh, no, we're bought and paid for whores. All well, right. and let's not forget that Citizens United, and we all know now, if we didn't know yesterday, we know mm-hmm. now that Citizens United is the enemy. It runs this country. It runs that, this country, but let's not forget who's making this money. It's the network yeah. affiliates that are making this money. And if we're going to change things and be the media, mm-hmm. we've got to stop them. Well, yeah. We've got to stop television networks from covering that up and, and hiding that conflict of interest. And we've got to use social media and our voices to, to as you said, you know, the flaming bag of shit needs to be on David Gregory's porch. Mm-hmm. Well, now, now, and figuratively here's the speaking, <laughs> and here's and here's the question. This this gets back to money. Mm-hmm. There's a lovely rant that Harlan Ellison does about pay the writer. Yeah. About about him getting a call from some young child who works for the studio mm-hmm. uh, who wants to use his essay that he did, I think, for Babylon Five on the DVD, and. And she wants him to give it to her for free. Yeah. And yeah. his response is, how fucking dare you? 
you know, well, you know, everybody else is doing it. Well, everyone else might be an idiot and an asshole, but I'm not. Do, 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 when you drive up to the gas station, do you ask for gas for free? Do you go to the doctor and insist they take out your liver for free? Do you do you pay the telecity guy? Do you pay the the union guys? Do you pay the caterers? Of course, you have every everyone gets paid because you're professionals. If you want professional results, you hire professionals. And and on the left side of the aisle, it's always fucking amateur hour. It's always you know what we really need are five more futons, a bunch more brown rice. We'll just live off the land. We'll scrape by somehow. We'll social media our way into respectability and we'll be poor because we're, we're righteous and we're down with the cause. No, there's no nobility in, in not getting paid for doing professional work. And I don't mean our listeners. Our listeners are generous, kind, decent people who scrape by every week and try to come up with a few cents and, and it shows up in our our PayPal account or in our PO box, and we're enormously grateful. I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about Tom Daschle. Yeah. You think Tom Daschle's holding a bake sale to buy anything for anybody? No. There are plenty of Democrats. There are plenty of liberals who have very deep pockets, but they don't want to fund any of this stuff. But what's in not, it for them? I think is a question that Karen was asking. Well, that's the question. I would ask them: Are you a fucking liberal or are you not? Do you believe, yes, you can get rich destroying the planet one inch at a time. You can make paper profit. You can, you can pile up gold. You can pile up treasure in this world doing those things. That's always been true. However, what is a stable middle class worth to you? What is a healthy country worth to you? What is an educated population worth to you? Yeah. If nothing, if you have no investment in this country, if that, if, if I have to monetize those things in terms of dollars and cents, as opposed to this is how our nation should fucking well be, and those people over there are destroying it, and how much is it worth to you not to have those tanks roll across your country and turn it into a fascist third world pest hole? How much is that worth to you? Do I need to spell out in dollars and cents? Do I need to do a PowerPoint presentation to you? Because if I need to do those things, then you're not a liberal. Yeah, then well, you're you know, poser. it's funny you should say that. I've, I've come across a lot of Republican douchebags on Facebook this week. <laughs> <laughs> Stay off Facebook, Blue Like Bell. a lot. People are on Facebook defending the Koch brothers. That's what's really driving me crazy. One person wrote something to the effect of, I don't see how you can attack uh, the Koch brothers and other wealthy individuals who worked hard for America and who single-handedly built this country. Mm-hmm. And I, <laughs> I yep, immediately... A <laughs> raw Galtian Randite awesome. Single-handedly built this country. And I went and looked up the number of universities south of the Mason-Dixon that mm-hmm. whose buildings were built by slaves. Yeah. And the, you know there are there are universities where the majority of the buildings <laughs> were yeah. built by slave labor. The White House, most of the old buildings in Washington DC slave labor not not that's not figurative actual slaves okay, now, built uh, these now, buildings now now let me let me stop you right there no wait and I, what I, I wanted to say when i saw that i thought you know Washington DC and the left wing blogosphere built by unpaid labor yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and, ours and I'm not comparing my suffering, no, my no. financial suffering, to that of, of antebellum slaves. It's ours isn't compulsory. No. Um, but in, in, on some days, I feel like I, I'm a chump. 
Well, and I said that to you in tears during the, when we when I'm I was a, out I, in the garden. I said, you yeah. know, no one's paying me to care this much. No, yeah. I just got chosen for this, you know, cross to bear, and it's not. I, like you said, we didn't. We aren't terribly, terribly suffering, hungry every day kind of thing. But we're ch- we're challenged financially. We're often and close. We're, it's and, hard. <laughs> it's and, hard. And nobody likes to hear you know anybody Liberals bitch whine about, about their being poor. Yeah, but However, honestly, and, but but money buys persistence. It buys yeah. patience. It buys focus. If yeah. if you're paying a consultant hundred and fifty dollars an hour. Yeah. To watch a single blade of grass grow, by God, they're going to do that. Mm-hmm. But what liberals are supposed to do is fight every battle on every front with no ammunition. Yeah. And and just sort of get in there and be amateur and pull it together, and we're going to get it. And you end up, you know, and and this is a, an artifact of the '60s and '70s and '80s to a certain degree. You end up with the same groups going from protest to protest. Yeah. You know, the nuclear freeze group. <laughs> this week is going to be next week's um, hot legalization group. Yeah, yeah group. I mean it's, it's the, the same group. Yeah. It's the same, <laughs> it's the same group. group. And, I, and God people. bless them. These are my people. I'm not yeah. mocking them at yeah. all. I'm not no. saying them at all. I'm we, saying we that, are them. <laughs> I'm saying that if you if you're Katie Abrams, yeah, and you become a a prominent lunatic teabagger by getting up and screaming about Soviet Russia. Someone in the organization, someone uh, cooks your bacon will, for you for the rest of your life. Will find place at the table because they want your voice out there. They want you to not have to worry about keeping body and soul together. They don't want to have to you, you know, if you and God if forbid you are they don't cutting, they want you to ever be without health insurance because they don't no. want you to turn on them. Yeah, no. yeah. And and you will your material needs will be taken care of um, until you're no longer needed. I mean that's that's the uh, the truth. It, once you know, I've worked for liberal organizations that were corporations, more yeah. or less. Well, yeah. And once yeah. they don't need you no more, over the side you go. Yeah. So I'm not I don't have any illusions about that. It's not about money. It's about pride in your craft and pride in the positions you take and is your is at the end of the day what you're doing of value to people. And and we hear every day that we are. And I think speaking of people who took a great deal of pride in their work and whose work is of inestimable value to us, we should pause for a moment to say something nice about Ray Bradbury. Yeah, who passed away this week. Who passed away this week. And, and who, I wanted to quote something that one of my commenters, we both put up something about Ray Bradbury and mm-hmm. something that perhaps you can riff on. Uh, mm-hmm. The blogger Cunning Runt said, science fiction led me to Ray Bradbury, then Ray led me away from science <laughs> fiction. <laughs> well, and you said that to me this morning, that you know he wasn't actually a science fiction writer that often. No. He wrote dystopias. Well, he wrote, he wrote poetry. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that he wrote lovely poetry about, about where he lived in Illinois and transposed a lot of his uh, settings to uh, the, the fictional green town. In a lot of his fiction, but he wrote about the Midwest and what it was like to live in the Midwest and what it was like to have carnivals come to town. And he, his pen always found that magical place. And he wrote, he really did write American magic realism or magical realism, uh, much more like uh, Borges um, uh, or someone like that, uh, who who really didn't 
get bogged down in the gadgetry of science fiction very much, um, if at all. He used it as a method of, of dreaming very intensely about particular worlds. And sometimes he wrote about um, the this this mysterious crowd. A guy discovers that in in every crowd that he can discover while doing research um, on a newspaper, certain people keep cropping up at accident scenes over the generations, practically. And I won't tell you how it ends, but it ends as you would expect a Ray Bradbury story to end. Or one of my favorites was called The Utterly Perfect Murder, which is about a long train ride. This guy goes back to his hometown to kill the bully that tormented him. Nothing science fictional about that. Uh, he wrote about futures with giant television sets and immersive technology that would take over your life, which is extraordinarily prescient. Yeah. Um, he wrote about a Mars that never existed, full of Martians that never were. Um, great beasts that live in the ocean that fall in love with lighthouses. And... The wind, the man who tracked the winds down where they come from, and now the winds have come to kill him. And he wrote beautiful stuff. And and I'm I'm sure I'm stealing from Harlan Ellison when I say that Ray Bradbury was the gateway drug. That when your friends don't understand what you see in this weird shit called science fiction, you give them Ray Bradbury. <laughs> and, and because, first of all, Ray Bradbury used to be everywhere. You can go to any spin rack in any drugstore in America and find a copy of the fucking Martian Chronicles yeah. or the Illustrated Man or something by or Dandelion Wine, um, which are just full of beautiful stories. Um, there's uh, the he wrote the screenplay for Moby Dick, which was you know Mets and Mets, um, a wonderful movie called um, Something Wicked This Way Comes with Jason Robards and Jonathan Price about when the devil comes to town. To steal your kids' souls, and he can—he'll promise you anything. And it's, it's a very old story, but I saw this movie. I went to the theater by myself as a grown-up to see this movie, and came out, and it was sunset, and there was somebody setting up a carnival in the parking lot. Oh my god! <laughs> and it was absolutely magical. Um, but he also wrote this thing. I think I'm pretty sure it's him called "Any Friend of Nicholas Nickleby's a Friend of Mine," um, which is how I feel sometimes. He—he he, he really wrote to the heart. He really went. He didn't care about gadgets. He cared about the human heart. He cared about love and compassion and God. He wrote a lot about God. And um, this wonderful story that I remember, I believe, stars Edward, um, why can't I think of his name? The guy who played um, Herman Munster. Ed Ed Gwynn. Ed Gwynn. He plays this guy who comes to this boarding house who spends the summer writing – Nicholas Nickleby, or writing um, Great Expectations. No, I can't remember what he's writing, but he's he's writing he's copying down, right? He's copying, and, and he and he names the little boy in the hotel Pip, and he becomes a friend of his, and he explains that he he and believe me, I identify with this story immensely. Most writers I know identify with it. That he tried and tried and tried his whole life to write really well, and he just couldn't do it because every time he turned around. Shakespeare was sitting on his shoulder mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or Melville or, or he had read too much. And every time he tried to write, someone else's voice came out, couldn't do it. And it was immensely frustrating. So he threw all of his papers away and just started writing Dickens, just copying it down, just yeah. copying it down. And it made him very, very happy to to take this little boy on this adventure of discovering this great novel. 
And then one day, and he's going to be alone for the rest of his life, of course, until one day he's in a library and he hears a scratching sound. And I can remember all this 20 years ago, as if I'd seen it just last night. Remembers, here's this sound that is, could only be the sound of a woman writing poetry. And it's, and he discovers a woman who has the same problem, who I believe is copying Emily Dickinson. And, oh, wow. and they fall in love and they go on the road and that's, you never hear from them again, but they go across the country having adventures. And that's the kind of lovely, completely non-science fictional stuff. Um, Boys Grow Giant Mushrooms in Your Basement is about a kid who answers an ad to grow mushrooms in his basement and what grows in his basement ain't mushrooms. It's how the invasion happens. It's how the, it's how the, the monsters finally come. Um, the, the vampire who comes to stay at grandma's boarding house. And only this kid knows that this guy's a vampire. And he takes what he, his grandmother has taught him about cutting, killing, and um, dressing chickens to kill the vampire. And he takes a, a jar full of silver dimes and pours it into the chest cavity to kill it. And it's just these magical little moments of pure, beautiful writing. And he found the right... Um, delivery system for it and so when i get all polemical and political and those things it really does my soul a lot of good to go back to people like bradbury who just wrote so fucking well and and legitimized this this weird little perverse genre that i was in and i could hold up i could hold up that book and say no i'm not a weirdo (laughs) (laughs) this great man is writing this awesome fucking fiction and it's in this genre so leave me alone (laughs) I was bullied a lot in school. I was I was terrorized in school. I was I was bullied really badly. And one of the things one of my um, grade school teachers did for me was give me a copy of Dandelion Wine, Ray Bradbury. And I think she understood that that would make me feel better. It wouldn't stop the bullying, but it would make me understand that there was a world out there that was welcoming to a, a weirdo like me. Mm. And it meant a lot. And so of all the writers with whom, with whose work I have fallen in love, um, Bradbury was the most um, enduring and fun and personal and poetic. He had a thing. He just wrote like nobody else. He did it his whole life. And he enjoyed writing and enjoyed getting up in the morning and being in love with life and writing every day. And if I could ever be anything like that, I would have lived a good life. And let's bring it full circle. With yeah. your bullying and the the idea of writing and art, because I'm going to yeah. tell you something, people. Fucking elections come and go. <laughs> yes, they, they do. do. Writing and art, and knowing yourself, and knowing that things get better, knowing that there's an arc of history, and fighting because it's the right thing to do, not because you'll win every time. It's what's going to keep us going. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I I look at you, Driftglass, and I watch you write and live with you, and we raise kids together, and you are so tough. <laughs> you and I are both, actually, <laughs> so tough, and and I see so much of myself in you in that... When somebody's being an asshole on Facebook, you and I look at that and go, wow, you use some big words there, person. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best (laughs) you fucking got? Really? Wow. 
I don't know, if I do this Photoshop of Andrew Breitbart, everybody might hate me. Mm-hmm. I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to do the art that pleases me. One of, the, one of the things, one of the bequests, mm-hmm. one of the things that people like Bradbury and Ellison and, mm-hmm. and other writers that I really admire. And Stephen and, Gilliard, don't forget. And Stephen Gilliard, absolutely. For God's <laughs> sake. I know a, what you're going to say. So. First, and, first and foremost, a, a really ass-kickingly good writer. Um, but one of the things that every writer has bequeathed to me that I've, I've come I've come in contact with is the is the sense that no matter how um, poor my education, no matter how much of a self you know, autodidact I am, uh, no matter how wrong I am occasionally about things, I own the entire English language. Yeah. It's mine. It's I. It belongs to me, and I can do with it whatever I want. I can take a blank piece of paper and do anything, anything I want to. And the only judgment that anyone's allowed to make was, did it work or didn't it work? As intended. Did you get the message? Did you get the joke? Did the story work? Did the punchline pay off? I can talk as filthy and as awful as I want. It doesn't matter as long as what I attempted, what my preconceived idea that I was trying to put across to you, person to person, in this very imperfect medium, did that do what I wanted it to do. Yeah. And if it did, I have succeeded as an artist. And I own that. And you can't take that away from me. You can take away my democracy. You can take away my union. You can take away my fucking job. You can take away all kinds of things. But you cannot rob me of the essential tool of being human, which yeah. is the ability to tell stories and a command of the language so that you can tell what you want to tell, convey what you want to convey in exactly the way you want to convey it, right or wrong. And that's mine. And that's yours, Blue Gal. And that's, that's the natural right of every human being. And if you don't understand that, you know, you, you're bringing a goddamn knife to a gunfight. Yeah, yeah. Because the only weapon we really have at the end is storytelling. Is and the, our it, souls. We have is, our souls. That's it. Yeah. Whenever, we, whenever we walk into a, a political, religious, sociological, economic argument, we're bringing facts with us, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But really what we're bringing, you know, the thing that, that liberals fail at consistently, not all of them, but a lot of them do, is translating the facts and the indignant um, fury that other people don't give a shit about facts. They never translate that into a narrative that's compelling and memorable. I can remember scenes from Bradbury's stories 40 years ago. That's a, that's a thing they teach you in writing yeah. class. You know, yeah. they, they, you read something and a week later, two weeks later, a month later, what can you recall? What do you remember? Are you creating a memory? Are you creating a memory in someone? Are you hooking something into their head so that they recall it? That's how you defeat advertising. Yeah. That's how you defeat money. You create a, a, a truly compelling narrative. And there are people who are good at it. They're called professionals. And occasionally, professionals would like to be treated like professionals. Well, yeah. and, and I want to get back to what, we just said what I just said about soul. That yep. you come into this world with a soul and you leave with a soul, and that's what you've got. Don't be apologetic about protecting your soul if you need again to take a break from politics or to go out in your garden or or read a novel. Go read some Ray Bradbury this week. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, and take a break if you need to, because really we need you to be there mm-hmm. and to be strong for the future fight. And and we want to thank you. All this talk about writing. Drift class. Mm-hmm. There have been at least four misspellings from the Romney campaign this week I since know. the Amercia 
debacle. <laughs> There's been three on Facebook, and uh, Ten Grain at Dependable Renegade caught them misspelling Reagan. Yeah, they Blue misspelled gal? Reagan. He I, doesn't I have, want to be president, I'm telling you. Blue Gal, I have been um, – one of the things I always brought to the job, whether I was you know, 20, 30, 40, or 50, um, and one thing that always appalled me and amused me is I have been close to or on the same decision tier with very important executives in, throughout my career. Um, in all kinds of different sectors, doing all kinds of different work. And I have always been astonished. Uh, starting in the late 70s, certainly I noticed this, but definitely 80s, 90s, and 2000s, the, the degree of just bone, stick, stone illiteracy yeah. on the part of people in very, very – they have a 500-word management buzzspeak vocabulary, and they're very good at that. They know exactly what – Five new words have been approved by the Harvard Business School, and, yeah. and they, they, they the know all the phrases. Yeah, yeah, they know all the all the techno, They know all of the management consultant bullshit words. Yeah, but put them in front of a piece of paper with a keyboard and say, "Construct for me a coherent English sentence that says the following." And they can't. Oh, just write a it. letter back to this customer. Yeah, and yeah. here's a letter from a customer. Answer it, they and they can't, can't do, do it. it. No, they can't no, do it. I, no. And I have had. I've, I have been correcting um, in, in jobs where I was hired part-time. It should have been full-time. I should have been a management, but it was part-time, and I was, I, was, I was grateful to get it. But I was correcting basic fucking spelling errors, yeah. basic comprehension errors. And, and you realize at some point of people who were my superiors, going out in, in, in cover letters, in memos, in pamphlets, in emails, in everything, and you can see them typing – with four angry fingers just stabbing at this keyboard fast, fast, fast. And the thing is, you realize this incoherent jumble of ideas and broken sentences that don't go anywhere and don't explain anything and are just just gibberish. It, it really is this, this uh, bowl of, of prosaic spaghetti that I have to go back to them two and three times going, I don't know what you're trying to say here. I don't know if you wanted someone to make a decision. Are you conveying information? I'm not being flip. I literally have no idea what you're talking about here. And the reason it comes out on the paper like that is because that's what the inside of their heads are like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that that basic illiterate spelling errors come out of a major presidential campaign because America's executive suites are packed with people who are very narrowly technically um, trained. But broadly speaking, fucking illiterate. Uneducated, yeah. And they don't catch any of this stuff. And believe me, I make my share of spelling errors. My, my editorial brain and my writing brain are two separate parts of my brain. And I, and I catch my own spelling errors a week later and just cringe at them. Well, and I, I think I, this gets back to Ray Bradbury, too, and all the things that he and Harlan Ellison and others have said about writing mm -hmm. is that when you're trained to make money instead of make art – Yeah. It doesn't matter how you spell or how you compose your thinking because no. you're out there to make a profit. That's, you know, that's you're you are a human spreadsheet. If that's what our colleges and universities are churning out as people who are human spreadsheets, mm -hmm. what, how, conveying an idea isn't important. No. So I also wanted to thank our listeners because all of them in all of them. Because yeah. we have reached a milestone. We have this week, this very week, reached 500,000 listens. Wow. 500,000 
times someone has clicked play. And my mom can only be <laughs> can only be what a hundred thousand of those. A hundred thousand top <laughs> of those. Um, and I I got a call from my dad today, and I told him this, and uh, he said, "Boy, I said if if I had a quarter for every time somebody clicked play," uh-huh. and he said, "You should have a dollar." <laughs> iTunes gets ninety nine cents a song. <laughs> You should have a dollar for every time. And I said, we'll never have a dollar for every time someone clicks play. But I'd like to have a quarter for every time someone no. clicks play. We don't get a quarter. I have three years of podcasting, total amount donated. And we love you guys for donating. Uh, you know, I I just – it's always a miracle when money comes in. Just like, it is. It, oh, it is. It is. wow. And some people are just amazingly generous. Like people on disability give us Ten dollars. People who are retired and have some money give us. Sometimes that just takes our breath away. Yeah. But you know, on average, it's like it's <laughs> what eighteen. Something. I don't know. It's some. It's a small pennies. It's pennies it's a, every time somebody comes it's out. Yeah, it's it, a lot it's, less than iTunes makes per song. Let me tell you that. Well, it's it's a lot less than I made as a stock boy when I was working well, yeah, at Sears yeah, part time. Yeah. 40 years ago. Yeah. Or 35. And we're not complaining. It, no, it no. Just, that's, it's, it's a goddamn miracle that people send us money to do this. But well, this is a pure. We love pure, doing this. We really this, do. This is pure a busking. This is a pure transaction. We make this pie. We leave it on the on the shelf. Have some. Don't have some. Leave something in the bucket. Don't leave something in the bucket. It's as pure a transaction mm-hmm. as you know yeah. as, as you're going to find. But it's it is vertigo inducing. Yeah. To realize that half a million listens to our little, you know, tin can operation here. Sitting around um, the dining room table or on the king size yeah. bed with headphones yeah. on talking. Yeah. And it's still That's fun. 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 I still really enjoy we doing this. I still, doing we still really set aside do. time during the week. We give it a much more, I think, pre thought. We yeah. do sort of work our way through the general topics we're going to. But this is still jazz. We still. Oh, yeah. Genuinely riff back and forth, and then Blue Gal goes into her uh, dark place, <laughs> and no one disturbs her for several hours while she makes this sound really good. And and if if necessary, I will do ringtones. Oh, for heaven's sakes! That's you know, you, you want, we, that's how we can make a fortune. Yeah, if you want to hear Bill Clinton saying, "Hey, asshole, answer the phone," <laughs> <laughs> I will do that for a buck. Absolutely. I think we I think we found. Yeah. Our future. Hey, baby, is that a phone in your pants? Are you happy to see me? That kind of thing. That kind of thing. We could do that. I'm your agent. Call me. Hey, <laughs> hey honey, bunch of boats. Give me a call. I'm in the book. I'll did roll you, back your did text. You see, did some, you see that? Yeah. I remember, remember the podcast we did with BP oil spill? And you were doing, you were riffing on Clinton and you said we're going to have to drill an auxiliary well. I'm not going to cap you till Christmas. Oh, my God. Did we, you see the picture of Clinton with the porn stars? No. Oh, my God. You have to see that. Yeah, he had a photo photo op with three. <laughs> and yeah. they were all taller than him. You can listen to our podcast for free at our website, professionalleft.blogspot.com, at our Facebook page. And I'm Francis Langham on Facebook. We're on iTunes and through our fabulous app available at the iTunes store. We're on the amazing Stitcher Radio, and we are on Netroots Radio from 6 to 7 Pacific and 9 to 10 Eastern at netrootsradio.blogspot.com. 
We do a shout out to all our friends who are at Netroots, Ra- Netroots Nation this weekend. We are not there. We have children running around our house uh, this week. School did not let out on time for us to be able to plan a trip to Providence, but our hearts are with you, and maybe next year. You can contribute to our podcast at our website, professionalleft.blogspot.com, and don't take all our griping about money to mean anything other than we've had a tough week financially. <laughs> And uh, you can mail us a letter. We love getting letters from you. Uh, and you can also send a contribution at our P.O. Box, which is P.O. Box 9133, Springfield, Illinois, 62791. Or you can email us at proleftpodcast at gmail.com. Every week, we post an Internet Kitty to our website and our Facebook page. This week's Internet Kitty has a long name, but I love it. It's Sister Eve Libertine Borgia. That sounds like a Ray Bradbury character <laughs> if ever I saw one. She's beautiful, and she her picture will grace our Facebook page and our website this week. So, Driftglass, how are the Internet Kitties doing this week? Well, Blue Gal, the Internet Kitties command us to read this quote from Ray Bradbury's The Fire Balloons. Brother Ray says this, The Lord is not serious. In fact, it is a little hard to know just what else he is except loving. And love has to do with humor, doesn't it? For you cannot love someone unless you put up with him, can you? And you cannot put up with someone constantly unless you can laugh at him. Isn't that true? And certainly we are ridiculous little animals wallowing in the fudge bowl. And God must love us all the more because we appeal to his humor. Let's think about living. Let's think about loving. Let's think about the hooping and the hopping and the popping and the loving, loving, loving. Let's forget about the whining and the crying, the shooting and the dying, and the fellow with the switchblade knife. Let's think about living. Let's think about life. This podcast is recorded under a Creative Commons license, copyright 2012, Drift Class Blue Gal Podcast. Thank you very much. That's good. That's good stuff. Yeah. It kind of gives people some hope. Well, you know, I will say this. Orly Tates will be forgotten in five years, and Ray Bradbury will be around 500 years from now. That's exactly right. Scott so, Walker will be in the dustbin of history, too. Count on yep. it. Yep, and people will still be reading the Martian Chronicles. Amen. Amen. Good night. Good night.